We've been looking at this prayer given on the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus said it this way, the hour has come. Now he had had an extended discourse with his disciples there in the upper room. Beginning there in verse, uh, or in chapter 13, and all the way through uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then he prays this prayer. It may be that not all of this was given, all of this discourse took place in the upper room. The reason I say that is found in chapter 14, verse 31. Let me just turn there briefly. He's speaking to his disciples, of course, and in verse 30 it says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So kind of midway through this discourse, perhaps, we don't know for sure, perhaps He and the disciples got up and started making their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe, I don't know, maybe some of this was actually given as they walked along. Maybe some of it was given as they entered the Mount of Olives. We don't know. Maybe it all was given there uh, in the upper room. It's usually called the upper room discourse. But I just wanted to point that out to you. Anyway, wherever it was given, we know this that after he had spoke with them for an extended period of time, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now that's as far as we've read in the past, and I want to go on and deal with verses 13 through 19 this evening. So let's read that. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And just for the sake of completion here, let's just finish the prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made known your name to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, we want to look at this section from 13 to 19 here this evening. Jesus was asking the Father to keep the disciples when he, that is, when Jesus, returned to the Father. While Jesus was in the world with the disciples, he was keeping them. But now he was leaving the world, and one of the things that he prayed for in this prayer, one of the things that was on his heart, just think of this. As he's approaching the time of the crucifixion, what's he thinking about? Well, one of the things is his disciples. He's thinking about them, not what's going to happen to him, but what could happen to them. And he's praying that God would keep them, watch over them, guard them, as he was going back to the Father. Now, it says in this verse, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. What is the these things he's talking about? Well, it's possible that he's just talking about this prayer, these things I speak in the world, but I don't think that's it. I think he's talking about all that he shared with him in this upper room discourse, these things. In fact, you see that little phrase at, uh, in verse uh, 1 of, of this chapter. Jesus spoke these things. That's what he's just been doing for, I don't know how long this would have taken, uh, hours probably to really what we shared there but the, the these things that he's speaking about were this this whole discourse that he's had with his disciples so when it says but now i come to you and these things i speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in them so i think he's referring to all that he has shared with them uh in this time Now, another reason that uh, I think that is just because I want to make a cross-reference for you here. 
But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, if you turn back to 15.11, you see a very similar thing. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. See, these things that he's speaking right then, that's the these things he's talking about, not just the prayer, but what he shared with him. And they were shared so that their joy might be made full. Uh, let me just point out this. It's an interesting study because I just I had you turn back to something that was referred to in the prayer. It's an interesting study as you look through John 17 to just see how many of the things that Jesus prayed about he had already spoken to them about. Many, many of the things that he brings up in his prayer he'd already talked to them about. Um, let me just give you one example here. In uh, the section we're looking at tonight, um, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's already talked to them about that. If you look back in 15, verse 18, this is just one example. He says, uh, 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So he's, he's talking about this very thing with them, and then he prays about it. Now, I think we can learn something from this, and that is when we talk with others about spiritual things, if we really want to do any good in that talking to others, we better take it to God also. This is what Jesus did. He spoke these things to the disciples, but he didn't leave it there. After he spoke these things, he prayed to the Father about them. I mean, that's the only way it's ever going to get down into somebody's heart. That's the only way it's going to get sealed and acted upon in a person's life is if God, if you pray to God and God intervenes and takes those words and uses them for his glory. So just that little uh, side note there. He, he talked to them, but then he prayed to the Father. Even Christ who shared God's word perfectly, felt it necessary to lift these things up to God. Well, in this verse, he was asking that his joy, the joy he had in abiding in the Father's love, he was asking that his joy might be in them. Uh, he was asking the Father that they might share, that his disciples might share in his joy. And you know what? The, the thing we always have to remember about this prayer is this prayer is going to be answered. There's no question about it. Jesus' prayer, this prayer will be answered. So when he says that uh, my joy may be made full in themselves, that's going to be a reality for Christ's disciples. It will be answered. Whatever situation you are in now, you shall have his joy made full in you if you're a follower of Christ, because Christ prayed that for his followers. That, to me, is an encouragement. This is a particularly important thing when you realize what he was saying in the context here. 
what else is going to come to you? Not just his joy, but hatred. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The hatred comes as a result of Jesus giving them God's word. Think of that. They were given God's word, and the world hated them. They received it, and God hated them. By receiving God's word and understanding that Christ had come from the Father and truly believing that the Father had sent him, their whole relationship with the world changed. Just by receiving that word and believing what Christ had said about himself, their whole relationship to the world changed. They were no longer of the world. Think of that. The word changed their lives and they were no longer, they were of the world, but no longer. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The word changed them. Uh, I think we could put it this way. To receive God's word radically changes your worldview and the world's view of you. To, receive, to really receive God's word will radically change your worldview. That's what it did for these disciples. And not only that, it'll change the world's view of you because you're not of the world anymore. If you receive God's word, you will not be well received by the world. Actually, what happens is you become like Christ and not like the world. Now, he never was of the world. Now, see how he says it here? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So you become like Christ in that he was not of the world, and you're not of the world. But he never was of the world. You, by receiving God's word, got pulled out of the world. He never was in the world. He came into it, the disciples, on the other hand, were of the world, but they were brought out of it. And what happens when that transpires is the world loves its own, but it hates God's own. And that's what you become when you receive God's word. Now, here's the point of all of this. The word and the world are incompatible. If you don't remember anything else, remember that little phrase. The word and the world are incompatible. Despite what some modern evangelists try to present, it remains the case that you cannot make the world like the word. You just can't do it. You can, you can put up all kinds of signs and streamers and have guns going off and everything else, but... If you're really presenting the word, the world's not going to like it. That's what happened. You see, this is what he's saying. I have given them your word, and the world hates them. That's all it took, you see. Receiving the word of God made it so that they were hated by the world. If you and I receive the word, you'll not be received well by the world.
While Jesus emphasizes the disciples' relationship to the world, world's principles and practices, again in verse 16, he says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. See, he says that twice. At the end of verse 14, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he's trying to emphasize the point again that the word has radically changed them to the point where it actually can be said about a disciple, they are not of the world. Well, Christ was asking the Father that the disciples would be kept after he goes back to heaven. And that's an important prayer when you have a situation like this. Hatred by most of the people that they were around. It was a vital thing that Christ prayed for. And he develops this more fully in verse 15. Yes, the world will be hostile to the disciples because they are no longer of the world. So, does that mean then that it would be best if they would just be taken out of the world? I mean, the world hates them. Might as well get them out of there, right? You know, the idea would be you just believe and God takes you straight to heaven. And Jesus does not pray that way. You see it in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. Now, I think there's two senses in which we can understand the first part of this verse where he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And those two senses would be to isolate them off from the world or to actually just take them right out of the world by, by death. So I want to just uh, examine those a little bit. The idea of retirement from the wor world or solitude, out on your own like a hermit. And this was, I mean, it's not like this is something that nobody's ever tried. It's, got, it's been tried over and over again. Uh, I mean, an extreme example of, that I've told you about in the past were these pillar saints. They called them pillar saints because they would live up on top of a pillar, you know. You get up away from the world and you're isolated and uncontaminated. I don't see how they could stay very uncontaminated up there. They never came down. They stayed up on top of the pillar. Well, that's an extreme example. Uh, but the idea that if you shut yourself off from the world and live alone, somehow you're more devout and you can serve God better. Jesus prays just the opposite. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And so the whole idea of monasteries and convents and all that kind of thing is misguided. I mean, it may be that some people actually thought they could be more holy in that uh, situation. But, you know, just think about it. Does it really make sense that living alone is the way you can serve God the best? You might be able to serve yourself the best and uh, wrap yourself in the garments of self-righteousness more easily but you can't worship God that way and Jesus says I do not ask that you take them out of the world how are you going to love your neighbors as yourself on top of a pillar or anywhere else where you're isolated and off so 
Jesus says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Well, that would be the first idea, just the retirement, uh, you know, off on your own. But some people would say, well, it would be better if God just take me out of the world right after I was, became a Christian. Immediate removal by death. But Jesus says, no, that's not the best. And he tells us why. I mean, he said, it's not, it would not be good for us to be taken out of the world. Let me just give some thoughts on why that would be. First of all, to stay a little while longer on the earth will make heaven a lot sweeter. I mean, if we just converted and go straight to heaven, you don't realize what God has been able to bring you through and uh, uh, brought you to. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way, Nothing makes rest so sweet as toil. Nothing can render security so pleasant as long exposure to alarms and fears and battles. So it's, it's good for us. It'll make heaven a little sweeter. Secondly, it'll make fellowship with Christ greater uh, if we stay a little bit longer here. Uh, again, Spurgeon said, I should never have known the Savior's love half so much if it had not been in the storms of affliction. And then it's, it's uh, good that we stay on for the good of others. God meant that we should be the means of salvation to other brethren, other people. So it's good for the sake of others that we stay on. As Paul even prayed that way, you know, I'd, I'd delight to depart and be with the Lord, but he felt like there was a reason for him to stay because there's yet work for him to do here on earth. So it's good for others. Um, as Spurgeon said, do not be afraid to go out into the world to do good. Christ is keeping you in the world for the advantage of your fellow men. So, another reason. And then lastly, for the glory of God, he keeps us here. The tried saint brings more glory to God than the untried one. Just brings more glory to God that he can keep you in the midst of an evil world. Think of this. If Christ had immediately taken these disciples to heaven, uh, the world would have been left in darkness. This, this, was the, this was Christianity at the time, these, these disciples, these 11 disciples. Take them out. Well, one thing you wouldn't have was the word that was going to be used for the conversion of others. You see that in verse uh, 21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Well, if, if, if they were converted and God just takes them out, there wouldn't have been, anybody to, there wouldn't have been any word for others to believe in. So he actually purposely sends them back into the world. This is what he says, verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Far from taking us out, he sends us in on purpose with a task to do, just as Christ. That's what he said. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. But Christ does pray that, would, that they would be kept from evil. Or it can be translated the evil one. And it's hard, it's not, you know, it's hard to know for sure which he meant here. But both are necessary. We need to be kept from evil and we need to be kept from the evil one. And this is what Christ is praying for us here. To be kept.
Um, actually, they go together. We need to be kept from the evil one, that is Satan, and the evil things that belong to the realm of the evil one. You know, he's the ruler of this world. And I, I tend to think that it's probably uh, to be kept from the evil one. That's uh, the way they have it translated here, although you can see if your Bible is like mine, the one is uh, in, in uh, italics there because they say uh, that means that they don't know for sure if that word belongs there. But I think they're probably right. And one of the reasons I think they're right is because, again, Jesus so often in this prayer deals with things that he's brought up in this discourse prior to the prayer. And he's talked about the ruler of the world a number of times. Let's just look at uh, as Satan being the either ruler of the world. Uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 30. We already read this. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But he'd have something in every one of them if Christ didn't pray and ask that they be kept from the ruler of the world, this the evil one. You see it again in 16, verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. But again, he's been speaking to them about the ruler of the world, and he's, he's speaking of Satan here. And so it would be natural for him to pray what uh, he prayed here. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. So whichever way you take this last part of the verse, the disciples are supposed to stay in the battle zone. In fact, they're purposely sent back into it. But they can be assured of being kept because Jesus prayed. God's, God can put them right back in the midst of the world that's ruled by this evil one, the ruler of this world, and keep them from evil and from the evil one. I like the way Leonard Ravenhill said it. He said, God takes an unholy man out of an unholy world and makes that man holy and puts him back into that unholy world and keeps him holy in it. And the way that he does that is through sanctification. And that's what comes up next. So let's talk about that a little bit. Move on to the next verses here that deal with this important subject of sanctification. First he prays for preservation and then sanctification. Then they go together. Now, let's read the verse. Sanctify them in the truth... Your word is truth. And then he brings it up again in verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. To sanctify then means to be set apart, to reserved for something special, uh, separated for a special use. Uh, for instance, if you might be going to some big event where you thought you could go in and sit anywhere you wanted to, but some of those seats happened to be sanctified. That is, there was a sign on them that said reserved. That means you can't sit there. It's reserved for somebody else. It was set apart for somebody else. Well, that's what this word means, to be set apart, sanctified. 
When people or things are set apart or reserved for God, they are sanctified, or sometimes we said or, or call that uh, holy, holiness. Uh, this has a definite moral aspect because if we're set apart for God's purposes, we want to do the things that he approves of and we won't want to do the things that he disapproves of, which means that we will have a more, that it has a moral aspect. When you're set apart to God, you're set apart to holiness, to purity, and uh, to be godlike in character. How is this done? Well, he tells us here in the verse, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. By the truth, you see, God sets us apart. God's word applied by the Holy Spirit is what brings sanctification. Now, it's first of all an inward work, an inward thing, where the word is brought to bear upon the heart and mind, which changes then our outward behavior and conduct. So the inward is first, then the outward. If you try to turn it around, it won't work. That's why certain ceremonies and rituals and rules never made anyone holy. They can't do it. The word has to get into the heart. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Uh, that's why asceticism and severe treatment of the body is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Those things can't get down deep enough, you see. It takes the word of God to do that, applied by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, getting right down to the very thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what it takes, you see, for sanctification to take place. These other things won't do it, those outward things. Our sanctification is the work of God, and it's something that Jesus prayed for. So again, we can be sure it will come to pass for all of God's disciples, all of his people. They will be sanctified. Just as sure as they'll be preserved, they will be sanctified but you see not only did he pray for it he lived and died and rose again for it Lloyd-Jones says the whole of the Christian gospel is in this one phrase where he says for their sakes I sanctified myself that's the gospel for their sakes, I sanctified myself. He not only prayed for their sanctification, he lived and died and rose again for their sanctification. Now, when he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, he does not mean he's going to make himself more holy, more morally pure. That's impossible. He does mean that he dedicated himself, he consecrated himself, he set himself apart for the special work of God, the task that God sent him into the world to, to accomplish, which was the salvation of sinners. He sanctified, he set himself apart. He offered himself to God for that task. All he is was given in eternity to God for the purpose of doing God's will. I think when he says... 
I, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I think that that goes clear back to the, before the world was. He set himself apart for this task. And then it involves his incarnation, his coming into the world. See, every, everything about him was devoted entirely to the purpose of redeeming this people that God had, had chosen. Um, a good cross-reference uh, is Titus 2.14. Speaking of Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for God's own possession, zealous for good deeds. But you see, he gave himself. That is, he set himself apart. And we shouldn't just think of the cross when we think of this. He set himself apart from eternity for this purpose of living coming into this world, living the life that he lived, dying the death that he died, rising again, set himself apart for that purpose um, to bring a people, redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified, you see. Uh, He set himself apart from eternity, that we might be set apart for God for eternity. His entering into this sinful world as a baby, there in a feeding trough, his years of working as a carpenter, all these things are part of of what we we should think about when we think about him setting himself apart. See, every, every day in the carpenter shop, he could have sinned, but he didn't. He reacted different when he slammed his finger, if he ever did that. He was set apart in the carpenter shop. He was set apart at his baptism, at his, at his temptation in the wilderness. He was setting himself apart for this work. He sanctified himself. You see, this is what I'm trying to get across. For their sakes, I sanctified myself, sanctify myself. Um, every step uh, in the wilderness... Every act of obedience throughout his life, every step, every action was part of this sanctification. Without which, no one would be sanctified. If he had not set himself apart from eternity and in all these things down the incarnation and all the way through his life, there would be no one who was sanctified. Well, it is true, though, that supremely, his setting apart of himself had to do with the cross. This is what we normally think of, and I think it's right that we do. Let me read from Lloyd-Jones here. <clears throat> he said, uh, What I have been describing is tremendous and staggering, staggering, but now there is something more glorious. He is now giving himself to God to be made the actual sin-bearer, the offering for sin. He has come down from heaven. He has identified himself with us. He submitted himself to baptism, though he never committed a sin, identifying himself with us sinners. He has endured all that 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 I have described. Yes, but if man is to be sanctified, if man is to be made so that he can dwell with God and dwell with him in eternity, 
something further has to be done. So he gives himself to that something further. He hands himself passively to the Father and says, I am ready now to be made sin for them. I am here offering myself for their sins. Lay their sins upon me. Make me their sin offering. He hands himself over. That is what it meant, and what is meant by sanctification. He set himself apart, you see. He made a further devotion of himself, a last act of consecration. Here, he says to the Father, in effect, as this is the only way whereby they can be sanctified, I give myself and I make myself a curse. Let their sins really come upon me that they may be sanctified. I hand myself over for this. And you see this even more in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not, uh, we're not, you know, quite to that section, but this is, this is what comes right after the, this prayer. He goes out and prays there in the Garden. Lloyd-Jones goes on. He is now submitting himself, therefore, to the most terrible thing that has ever, he has ever contemplated, namely that he should be separated from his Father. He was in God from the beginning. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God. But here he realizes and he faces it that in order to save and to sanctify these people, he has to undergo this separation from God and be made a curse. It means the breaking of the contact, and he submits himself even to that. He is prepared to endure even the loss of the face of God on the cross that we might be sanctified. He separates himself to this. So there's a lot involved in that verse. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. By the sanctification of himself... He has made our sanctification possible. But I would say it even stronger than that. He's made our sanctification certain. He died for it. He lived for it. He died for it. He rose again for it. And he prayed for it. And again, if Christ prayed for it, you can be sure it's going to take place. He willingly, freely, there wasn't anything in us that compelled him to do this. It was in him, in obedience to the Father. He set himself apart. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. And he prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Well, we'll stop there this evening and hopefully pick up at verse 20 the next time.